You're listening to a sermon from Ketchikan Church of the Nazarene. For more sermons or information about our church, please visit ktnnaz.org or like Ketchikan Naz on Facebook. All right. We are, in case you didn't pick up, we are in the book of Esther. We will be in the book of Esther for as long as it takes us to get through the book of Esther. Uh, We are going to pretty much go through chapter by chapter, dissecting this book and seeing what it has to say to us, because um, this is one of the most puzzling books in the entire Bible. This is one of the books that preachers don't preach out of, because it's difficult to preach out of. So what are we going to do? We're going to preach the difficult biblical texts, because they're good for us. Um, Before we dive into the text this morning, we're going to get some history out of the way. Because this is a little read and little understood book, um, we need to get some background so that we're all on the same page. So bear with me. This is going to be an interesting history lesson. Um, There are historical, theological, and cultural difficulties with this book. Um, So we shouldn't be intimidated by that. We should instead embrace it. We recognize that Esther is... A book in the Bible. Therefore, it is God's word. Therefore, it is useful for teaching and correction, rebuke, encouragement, these kinds of things. Um, it is um, one of the least preached books in the Bible, as I said earlier. It's the story of a Jewish orphan girl who is made queen of the greatest kingdom the earth had ever seen. She uncovers this genocidal plot that is going to wipe out her entire nation, all the Jews. And so she sets out to save her people from this genocide. And in doing so, she becomes the greatest queen in biblical history. Often she's looked at as a role model for Christian women. She's the hero of the story. Women read this book and movies and books have been written based on Esther. Be like Esther because she is a strong biblical example. It reads a lot like a fiction, maybe a history, maybe this great, you know, fantasy story. You're drawn into the plot and the characters as you read it. And here's a brief overview of the characters. There's a king. His name is Ahasuerus. You might also hear him called Xerxes. I will call him Xerxes. It's a little easier to say than Ahasuerus, okay? Um, It's a Persian name versus a Greek name. Same guy. He is... um, the king. Then there's Vashti. You meet her in the first chapter, right? She is currently, at the very beginning of the book, the reigning queen. Then there's Esther, who is this young Jewish girl who becomes queen. Mordecai is Esther's cousin. Then Haman is the guy that the king trusts, his right-hand man. He hates Jews. And then lastly is this little-known group, Xerxes' wise council, about seven of them. So those are roughly the main characters you'll run into. You've got the king, his current wife. Then you've got his future wife and her cousin. Then you've got the king's right-hand man and his council. And that's kind of how this story plays out. Now, the video gave a brief summary of the history leading up to Esther. I want to review it because that was a cool video, but I want to make sure that we understand Um, how things go. So in case you need this history over again, here it is, right, using fish, because we understand fish here in Alaska. Um, Think of the kingdoms talked about in biblical history as the fish. You have Israel, this little fish that abandoned God, and because of that, Nebi, King Nebuchadnezzar, right? 
he, work with me, King Nebi, um, King Nebi came in and he swallowed up Israel. He took Israel into captivity. He said, you'll be my slaves. This is um, the period in biblical history where you see things like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and Daniel in the lion's den. That all happened during good old Nebi's reign, okay? Um, and then, shortly after Nebi fell, he fell to King Cyrus. King Cyrus was a bigger fish in the pond. He had more power than Nebi, and he overtook Nebi's throne. Now, um, King Nebuchadnezzar, uh, he was a good king, or King Cyrus, he was a good king, as the video told us. He didn't believe in slavery, and he said, listen... I want the Israelites to go back to their kingdom. In fact, I'm not just going to let them go back to their kingdom. I'm going to give them funding to go rebuild their temple. Because when Nebuchadnezzar destroyed the city and took Israel, he actually burned the temple to the ground. Gone. So Cyrus says, well, that wasn't great. Let me send you with wealth and riches and cattle. I want you to rebuild your city to be like it was. I'm not worshiping your God, but you can go back and worship your God and give him all the praise and all the glory and I'll enable you to do that. He was a good king. So then Cyrus is a good king for a while, and the nation of Israel um, in part goes back. Now part of the nation of Israel stayed in Babylon as it was being rebuilt. So now the nation of Israel is in two locations. Are you with me? Some are in Israel rebuilding, and some are in Babylon under Cyrus because he's a good thing and things are going well for them. So some went home, some stayed. This is where we start to see problems arise. So after Cyrus, there were several other kings down through the time that really didn't affect Cyrus's kingdom until one day the really big fish, Xerxes, came about. Xerxes was the big fish in the pond. He was the guy that lived at the deep. He was the monster. He was the one that came to power and he ruled all of the known world. He went around devouring kingdom after kingdom, nation after nation, city after city. No one could stand up to King Xerxes. He was the man, or in this case, the fish that overthrew everyone else. But things were still good for Israel under Xerxes. Now, the people who lived, the Jews who lived in his kingdom, thrived and prospered. So much so that they moved from Babylon, where they were, to Susa, where the kingdom center was, where Xerxes' kingdom throne was, because that was the richest city. It was the biggest city in the world. Everything was good there. Trade thrived there. Money was there. Opportunity was there. So you wanted to go there and do business. So the Israelites who didn't return home under Cyrus, they moved from Babylon to Susa to be where Xerxes was. And as the story says, as they moved... From Babylon to Susa, there was a family of the tribe of Benjamin. Mother and father had a daughter, and along the journey, the mother and father died, leaving a young baby, Esther, to the care of Mordecai. So Mordecai now is in charge of Esther as they arrive in Susa. And this is where we pick up the story in part. Esther, a young, orphan, Jewish girl being taken care of by her cousin Mordecai, and now we find ourselves in Susa under the reign of Xerxes. This takes place roughly between 480 and 470. Remember, time goes differently before Christ. So 480 to 470 B.C., just so that you know time-wise in your world history map where this goes. 
Now, there's a few things to note before we go any further. Um, as I said earlier, it's in the Bible. This is God's word to us. We must read this as though God is telling us something important about our lives that we need to learn and absorb here. Um, it also chronicles the um, beginning of the Jewish Feast of Purim. Um, this is uh, something that Jews would celebrate from this time forward. This is the book of the Bible where that feast began, and we'll begin to understand that as the weeks develop. Um, this is not uh, primarily a, a book in which we would look at Esther and go, this is the perfect example of how we should live. Um, this is the book that tells us the story of a young woman who was a Jew who was between a rock and a hard place. What do you do when neither choice is good? Where is God when the difficult circumstances are all around you and there is no good option? How do you honor God when you are between a rock and a hard place? This is the book that answers these questions. It's not a book about women's liberation, though many people have taken it and looked at Vashti and said, Go Vashti for standing up to your horrible pig of a husband. Let's make the entire story about women's liberation. That's not really what the book of Esther is about. It's not either um, an example of men and how men should lead. Men don't lead like Xerxes led, okay? It's just not good. Don't follow that example. This is a book full of controversy. In the book, there's a lot of controversy. Outside of the book, in studying it, there is controversy. There was a famous Jewish scholar in the 1100s, the Middle Ages, and he said that the book of Esther is second only to the Torah in its importance in the scriptures. So keep in mind, um, Jewish scholar, not necessarily Christ-based here, he looked at all of the Jewish scriptures and he said, second to the Torah, which is the first five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, second to the creation epic and the forefathers and the law, the Ten Commandments, Esther is second to that of importance. The second most important section in Scripture is Esther. But then you get Martin Luther, who is one of my favorite old dead guys, and he said this about the book of Esther, I wish it didn't even exist. It's too full of pagan impropriety, and God is nowhere to be found in there. So you have these two great guys in history. Really famous guy, Maon Manides, I can't even pronounce his, word, his name right, the Jewish historian, scholar, and Luther, and they have completely contrasting views on the book of Esther. It's second only to the Torah and its importance. It shouldn't even be in the Bible, right? So we're looking at a book that not just our era has struggled with, but every era in time seems to have struggled with what to do with the book of Esther. And I would say to you this, Luther is both right and wrong. There is an abundance of pagan lifestyle um, the choices that pagans made are glorified in this book in detail, right? As we go through this book, there are going to be things that are just difficult to hear, like genocide, right? We've seen that in modern day, um, World War II, the Nazis. That's, in essence, what is going on here. In fact, in World War II, Esther was banned. It could not be read, published. It was burned um, because the Nazis didn't want Jews reading the story about God's plan of salvation for the Jews from genocide. So in concentration camps, they recited it by memory. 
They wrote it on walls and scraps of paper. Anything they could find, they wrote down the book of Esther from memory because it told the story of God's providing salvation from genocide. It's a beautiful story, and that's what Purim celebrates, freedom from genocide. The book also handles murder, um, aside from genocide. Um, Sexual sin was abundant in this book. Moral failures, um, drunkenness, all kinds of things. If it, if it could be pagan and horrible and not good and morally corrupt, there it is. Um, there's no mention of God in this book. Not mentioned. There is no mention of the fathers of Israel, Abraham, David, Isaac. None of them are mentioned. Prayer, not mentioned. Covenant with God, not mentioned. Worship with God, not mentioned. Sacrifice um, to God, not mentioned. There are no miracles. Jerusalem is not mentioned. There is no mention of the repentance of sin. Nothing. If you, there is nothing in this book that makes you think that God is speaking to you. You don't read God's name. There's no prayer. There's no conversation with God. It seems like this book is completely devoid of God. Esther does not quote any other biblical text, nor does any other biblical text quote Esther. Right? This is a difficult book to discuss. So people begin to wonder, where is God in this book? Why is it even in the Bible? What does it teach us about life and faith in Christ? But while God is not explicitly mentioned, he is surely, most assuredly at work in every single page, every single word of this story. To believe that God is absent from the story of Esther, you have to believe the following statements. That Esther just happens to be beautiful. That Esther just happens to be favored by the king. That Esther just happens to be Jewish. That Esther just happens to save the king's life. That Esther just happens, or that Haman just happens to mention his troubles with Mordecai to his evil friends. That Haman's evil friends just happen to encourage him to build a set of gallows. That Xerxes just happens to have trouble sleeping one night. That Xerxes, while he just happens to have trouble sleeping, just happens to have the book of the record read to him. That this book just happens to contain the record of Mordecai's life-saving deed. That it just happens that Mordecai was never rewarded. That Haman comes in to the king just as, Mordecai, or just as the king is wondering how to honor Mordecai. That Haman just happens to be pleading with Esther on his knees as the king sees it. The truth of the story is that this is not a book of it just happened. It's not a book of coincidences. And it might seem so. It might seem that at first glance Esther is the story of a young girl who braved many difficult circumstances to become queen. Um, But it is in fact a story of God's providence. A story of God's salvation from slavery and death and sin for the people at that time and for us through Jesus. It's a story of God's hand working in difficult circumstances where you might not ordinarily see him working for the good of his people and the salvation of mankind. It is applicable today and now because everything in the story of Esther points to Jesus. Everything in the story of Esther is about Jesus. 
about his grace and his provision, his power, his salvation, his covenant love for us, his mercy. Everything in this book is about Jesus. And so over the next, I don't know how long, two weeks, three months, however long we're in this book, okay? We will be looking at the characters and the plot line and going, what does this tell us about Jesus? And what does this tell us about our relationship to Jesus? And I really hope that it encourages your soul because it does mine. That when it looks like in my life that God is silent, he's not. When it looks like I have a choice and one is just not great and the other is even worse, that God can work in those circumstances. That there is no circumstance or situation that God is not sovereign over. And this is the hope that we get from the book of Esther, where it seems that God is silent. He is really speaking to us. And this is where we will jump into the book of Esther this morning. I will not ask you to stand and read unless you would really love to stand. We are going to read the entire first chapter of the book of Esther. Um, So if you will flip there with me, we're going to get the story because that's what this is. And as you listen, I want you to hear it as if you're getting told a story, this great story. Sometimes we read the Bible and it's just the Bible and we're like, blah, 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 Jesus, blah, 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 someone did something, blah, blah. And don't tune it out like that this morning. I want you to hear it like it's a story, like you're going to the library at story time and someone is reading something to you, okay? I want you to picture this in your mind, even if you want to close your eyes and follow along. Esther chapter 1. Now in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces... In those days, when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the capital, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all of his officials and all of his servants. The army of Persia and Media, the nobles and the governors of the provinces were before him. While he showed them the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. That's a long party if you're following along. And when those days were completed... The king gave for all of the people present in Susa, the citadel, both great and small, a feast that lasted seven days. It was in the court of the garden of the king's palace. And there were white cotton curtains hanging and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple and silver rods and marble pillars and couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of of this gem that I can't even pronounce and marble and mother of pearl and precious stones. Get this. What he's saying, the ground is paved with jewels, right? This is, some, this is some kingdom. Drinks were served in gold vessels, vessels of different kinds, and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king. Drinking was according to this edict. There's no compulsion because the king had given orders to all of the staff of his palace to do as each man had desired. Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the woman in the palace that belonged to King Ahasuerus. So summary thus far, the king threw a 180-day party. And after that 180-day party for the rulers of his kingdom, he opened it up to everyone in the richest city in the kingdom. And he invited them to his palace. And as much drink as could be poured out, as fast as it could be poured out, for seven days, everyone in the kingdom partied. And at the same time, the queen was throwing a party. So you have 187 days worth of drunk people. And then Queen Vashti comes on the scene. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mehuman, Bizta, Harbana, Bigtha, Abgatha, Zethar, and Carcass, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of the king Ahasuerus, 
to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the people and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command, delivered by the eunuchs, and the king became enraged and his anger burned within him. And then the king said to the wise men who knew the times, for this was the king's procedure, all who were well-versed in the law and judgment, the men next to him being um, seven other men's uh, names I don't really pronounce very well. They were the seven provinces of Persia and Media, and they saw the king's face and sat first in the kingdom, and they were his council. And they said, according to the law, what is to be done with Queen Vashti? Because she's not performed the king's command. And then Mahuman said, in the presence of the king and the officials, not only against the king and or not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but also against all of the officials and all of the people in all of the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's behavior will be made known to all women. And they will then look at their husbands with contempt, for they will say, King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she didn't come. So on this very day, noble women of Persia and Media will have heard of the queen's behavior, and they will come, and they will say to all of the king's officials, and there will be contempt and wrath aplenty. So, if it pleases the king, let a royal order go out from him, and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes, so that it can never be repealed that Vashti will never come before the king again and let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she is. And so when the decree was made by the king, it is proclaimed throughout all the kingdom, for it is vast. And all of the women will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike. And this advice pleased the king and the princes, and the king did as the royal council proposed. He sent letters to the royal provinces, to every province in its own script, and to every people in its own language, that every man might be master in his own household and speak accordingly to the language of his own people. All right, that's a lot in the first chapter. We're going to unpack that, okay? There's a lot here about Jesus, and in case you didn't see it, he is there. All right, if you're following along, kids, this is where your notes begin. Um, Oh, yeah, sorry, I'm one behind. There we go. Esther does not mention all of those things. All right, we're going to start with Xerxes. He's the first guy we meet. Again, it says Ahasuerus in some of your translations. We're going to start with Xerxes. In the days of Xerxes. That's how we start the chapter. In the days of Xerxes. So who is Xerxes? Well, Xerxes is a king, and he has a kingdom, and his kingdom is large. In fact, in his day and age, it was known as the world. He conquered all the known world, right? The United States didn't exist back then. So he conquered the world. Um, Everything in the green is his kingdom. Everything in the black is water. And the white is areas we might recognize today. Here's the boot of Italy in white, okay? Here's Libya, Saudi Arabia, India over here. Um, Those things might not necessarily have existed in the day of Xerxes as we know them today. Um, Pretty much what existed in the day of Xerxes was everything in green. That was the known world. And everything in green, he oversaw. That was his kingdom. He ruled the world. His kingdom was very large. 127 provinces, to be exact. Um, Essentially, it's this. Egypt, Libya, Israel, Turkey, Iraq, Iran, Saudi Arabia, Afghanistan, and Pakistan as one nation. Under one Xerxes. That was the world, give or take a few. 
His army had a few million men, conservatively speaking. That's the best estimate we can get based on the size of his kingdom, the number of provinces. About a million people served in his army, a million fighters. His kingdom, not just large, it was wealthy, so wealthy. All, all of the wealth belonged to Xerxes. You want to know how wealthy his kingdom was? Let's look at this party he threw. His kingdom was so wealthy, he could throw a party that lasted 180 days. You guys ever had a house party? House guests for an extended period of time? Food for an added number of people? Entertainment for those people? You know, it's a chunk of change. 180 days. Um, The 180-day party was for all of the leaders of the known provinces. 127 provinces, all of the mayors and city council members and all of the things that goes into leading those provinces were all invited to this 180-day party. It was, um, it was like this. Every president, prime minister, governor from the known world map that we just looked at was going to the White House. Okay? This is kind of what it would look like in the day. Everybody from the world comes to visit President Obama for 180 days in which they drink to their heart's content and have all of the entertainment right there brought to them. Um, The king was not only wealthy, the kingdom was not only wealthy, but can you imagine, you know that your kingdom is so large and so strong that you can have all of the leaders of the kingdom get drunk for 180 days and not worry that your kingdom's going to get taken over by another kingdom, right? (laughs) He was really arrogant, King Xerxes. He had a great sense of pride in his security. At minimum... 20,000 people were present at this 180-day party. There are historical records from his kingdom that state upwards of 70,000 people were present at his 180-day feast. 70,000 people. Yeah, we'll draw a middle line and we'll say 35,000, 40,000 people. Still, I mean, really, that's an expensive party. It's not just that the wealth to feed the people was expensive or to give liberally from the king's storehouse of wine. But if you read the description of the location of the party, gold couches, not very comfortable, but very expensive. Silver couches, not very comfortable, very expensive. Purple linen everywhere. I mean, just purple was expensive to produce because of the type of dye it was. It was everywhere. Marble pillars The floor was paved with fancy jewels. People drank out of gold cups. This is the richest of the rich. Okay? Um, And as if that was not enough of a party, when the 180 days were over, everyone in the biggest city in the world was invited to come and hang out with the king in his palace courtyard. Now, I'm pretty sure not everyone fit. There was some milling around, and people would come and go based on their work schedules. But it was an open invitation to the kingdom's palace, to party, to get drunk, to have fun, to see dancing and whatever went on in those days. And at the same time that the seven-day party was going on, Vashti, in the harem of women, was having a party for the women. So as a king, Xerxes was great. That's why they called him Xerxes the Great, historical record. Not necessarily because he was great morally, but because his greatness came from size and power that he ruled over the largest kingdom, the largest army. 
He literally sat on a massive throne. He demanded godlike worship of anyone in his presence. Historical record tells us this, that if you approached his throne without asking, death. If you walked by his throne without kneeling, death. If you sat on his throne, double death. Okay? He treated himself like he was a god. He had an entourage of warriors who guarded him day and night, about 50 to 100 men, whose sole job, the cream of the crop of the army, was to sit around Xerxes and make sure no one came to touch him. That if they didn't bow before him, they would die on the spot. They were sworn to die for him. They were the ones that took his golden, jewel-encrusted throne into battle. They carried it on, his, on their shoulders so that he could sit on his throne and command his army during days of battle. And the overall message he gave was this, I am more than a man. If you fail to acknowledge my godlike status, I'll have you killed. I judge you from my throne. I rule my kingdom from my throne. I am your God. It's basically what Xerxes says. This prideful status was not just for fancy occasions or war. It was part of his character. Everything that he was was full of pride. Xerxes was a prideful king. The 180-day feast was thrown, as it says in Scripture, so that he could show off his power and glory and wealth and security and status to everyone. And so after he was totally wasted from 180 days of drunken partying, he called for his queen. He had the grand idea to parade her in minimal clothing um, before all of the kingdom's leaders and soldiers who also happened to be drunk. And so she refused. Right? Women, would you go or not go? Yeah. Um, Vashti did the right thing here. That was not a good thing that he asked her to do. But he was a proud, drunken king who wanted to show off his wife as a trophy. She refused. And this deeply offended the pride of the king. It left him high and dry in front of all of the people he was trying to impress. He was embarrassed before his drunken nation, and he can't stand for that. We know that he has people sent to death just for looking at him wrong. So rather than take this moment and realize, yeah, I was kind of drunk. Those words were kind of stupid. Vashti, I'm sorry. Instead of repenting, because the prideful drunk king doesn't repent... He decides to rewrite the laws to justify his actions. He sits down to justify his actions in the law and enable other men to do the same thing. He consults his wise men, and they suggest that first he find a new queen, and that he writes a decree that basically gives husbands the status of slave owners over their wives. He's writing it in the law. And in those days, the edict of the king couldn't be reversed. You remember Daniel in the lion den? The, the friends uh, or the enemies of Daniel said, we're going to trick the king. Uh, you should write a law that only you can be bowed down and prayed to. And Daniel worshipped the king and, or worshipped God. And so he was sent to the lion's den. But it grieved the king because he couldn't rewrite the law. Once it had been written, it was written. Now, this is where we find Xerxes. He writes a law that can't be revoked. And it said this. 
Husbands can demand anything from their wives, and no matter how debased it is, no matter how unmoral or degrading it is, wives, you have to do it. Because the king is telling you, not only are you subject to your husband, you're subject to the king. You have to do what your husband says. Or you could be in trouble. You could be put to death. Wives are now slaves to their husbands. And this message went out to all nations under Xerxes' reign, the entire world. There's no honor or respect in that behavior. So Xerxes was a powerful king. He was worshipped as God. He was feared by men and by nations. He was a sinful king. Everything we've read this morning about Xerxes shows his sin and his pride. He ruled a kingdom that followed in his example. Where he led, the kingdom went. Where he went in pride, the kingdom followed. Where he went in sin and drunkenness and debased behavior, the kingdom followed. Where he went in lust and immorality, the kingdom followed. Because they were scared of the king that ruled over them. And so long as they did what the king said, it went well for them. But the minute they disobeyed, the iron fist of Xerxes fell upon them. He was known to wipe nations off the face of the planet if they disobeyed or disagreed. That was the kingdom that Esther lived in. That was the kingdom that this book is talking about. So let's step into modern day now. All right? Let's talk about Ketchikan. Let's talk about America. Let's talk about the world that we live in today. Our world has expanded. We have more countries, more nations. Um, but if we think honestly about where we live culturally today, we might not live in such a different place, right? Um, our days are not that much different than the days of Xerxes. We don't necessarily have a Xerxes who rules over us, but there are powers that rise in the world that lead people to do things. Third world countries, there are powers. There's squabble over who can be the dictator. There are cultural powers that rise in the United States. Um, entertainment artists and fads and all kinds of things that rise to power and determine how we live. We follow who we call our king. Kings and nations and powers rise and fall. And people follow them, and then when that one falls, they jump to the next leader, right? The one who provides them with wealth or power or comfort. And we share many similarities with the epic of Esther. Let's think about Ketchikan for a moment. We have roughly 80 to 100 people in our church. If everyone shows up, we'd actually fill all the chairs. Um, I'd, that'd just be great. We should do that some Sunday just for the fun of it. Um, roughly 80 people in our church. In a city of 12,900 unbelievers. Remember that um, we have about 14,000 people in the borough, 12,900 unbelievers, 1,100 believers. All around us are people who don't follow Christ. They worship their own Xerxes. They worship the king who gives them what they need, the protection, the status, the I don't know what. They worship who they worship because it's easier. And the question is this, is is God at work? Does God still show up when believers are the minority? When we are but a remnant in a land that is ruled by a great tyrant or tyrants or cultural tyrants, 
Does God still work through a small remnant? Does God still care about us? Or did he just abandon us on this island with 12,900 unbelievers? Is there still hope for us? Is there still hope for the word of Christ in this city? Let's expand this out. Is there still hope for the world to come to know Christ when we might be the minority? There are false gods. There is no faith in many locations of the world and here in Ketchikan. There is vague spirituality. There is immoral behavior. And we could simply sit and ask these questions. Where is God when our suicide rate is so high? Where is God when people who don't know Christ kill themselves? Where is God when drugs and sexuality and drinking rule the hearts and the behaviors of our people? Where was God in the kingdom of Xerxes when he said, genocide's fine by me? It wasn't visible. And maybe, maybe your life is like that. Maybe you don't pray because the times you prayed, you didn't get an answer. God was silent. Maybe you've never seen a miracle. Maybe you wonder why you're sick and you've never gotten healed. Maybe your marriage is falling apart and you wonder where God is in that. Maybe you can't make ends meet and you think God's given up on you. That he doesn't bless you. That he doesn't see your pain or your suffering. Where is God in all of this? In our lives and the lives of our city and our world. Which is overrun by the world and the flesh and the devil. Where it seems like that we always must serve the bottom line. Or the boss or the crisis of the moment. Where is God in these moments? Where is God when we're 80 and there's 12,900 people? When you're the religious minority, how do you relate to the dominant culture? We live in a kingdom or a city where the majority of people don't share our faith. How did the remnants of the Jewish population live in a pagan society of Susa? Did they still worship? They weren't going to Jerusalem. They lived in Susa. The journey was long, we know, because many people died. They weren't going back to worship at the temple. How did they live their faith in a city that was so contrary to their faith? Do you withdraw so that you're completely pure? Do you say, this is the way I live and I'm going to stay away and untainted from all of you evil people because this is, this is my special faith and I can't be dirtied by you. I can't engage with you because I might become tainted. I might be tempted. I'm going to withdraw. Is that what we do? Well, not really. Do you try and fit in, but you just keep your views a secret? You hang out, you do the things that everyone else does, but secretly you're a believer? Well, that doesn't seem right either. Should you protest and criticize everything? Stand on the street corner and yell, you're all sinners. Well, that's not very profitable either. There has to be some sort of way that we can live in a, in a pagan society, one that doesn't worship Christ, but still be lights to the people. Still have hope that God sees us. Even when we're between a rock and a hard place in our own faith, or the city is between a rock and a hard place in its own right because it doesn't follow Christ. And the heart's cry of us should be, there has to be a better kingdom. There has to be a better king. This can't be all there is. This can't be it. The world we live in cannot be all there is. 
the struggles that we go through can't be it. The suicide rate can't be all there is. Divorce rate can't be it. Broken families can't be all there is. Fads and trends and powers that rise and fall, consistently changing how we do life and how we feel, that can't be it, can we? I mean, like, there has to be something more. But in the book of Esther, the question is, what? There, there isn't more in the book of Esther. God isn't mentioned. Salvation isn't mentioned. But we get this great hindsight. We can look at the book of Esther, and with that heart cry that we have, that there has to be a better kingdom, there has to be a better king than what we're seeing with our eyes, we can look at the book of Esther and we go, wow, we have hindsight. We know something she didn't. We live in a world under the rule of flesh, but we are subjects to a better king. We are subjects to a better king who has a better kingdom. We have a, a king who is better than Xerxes, who has a kingdom that is better than Xerxes' kingdom. Amen? Right. So here's the good news. This is not the only book of the Bible. If we were just to read this, it would be mildly depressing. But this is not the only book of the Bible. It's part of a storyline. It's a little story, which is part of a bigger story, and they all tell us about Jesus, about a greater king above Xerxes, a king above Xerxes, a king above every king, above every president, above every dictator, and above every ruler. One king named Jesus. See, above Xerxes, there's another throne. And is seated on it another king. And his name is Jesus. Jesus is our king. And unlike Xerxes, Jesus got off his throne. He didn't just invite us to come and bow before his throne and sit around him. Jesus came down to dwell among us. He got down off his throne and became one of us. So Xerxes was high and exalted not to be dirtied with the commoners. Jesus, high and exalted, ruling, seated on a throne. He got down off his throne. He came down to the confused and the fallen and the flawed and the failed of the world. And he came not to take or threaten or issue edicts and iron fists, but he came to give. He came not to enslave us like Xerxes enslaved nations, but Jesus came to free us from our sin and our slavery. You need to know that Jesus is a better king. And here's what Xerxes said about himself. This is taken from an inscription that archaeologists uncovered. Xerxes, I quote, I am Xerxes, the great king, the only king, the king of all countries, which speak all kinds of languages, the king of this entire, big, far-reaching earth. Xerxes thought he was Jesus. But Jesus is a better king. Xerxes was the son of Darius. Jesus is the Son of God. Xerxes never tasted poverty or humility. Jesus tasted both poverty and humility to identify with us. Xerxes used his powers to abuse women and enable the abuse of women throughout his entire nation. But Jesus used his power to honor women and lift them up. 
Xerxes spent his entire life being served. But Jesus spent his entire life serving others. Xerxes spent his life in sin and pride. And Jesus spent his life sinless and humble. Xerxes killed his enemies with an army of millions. But Jesus died for his enemies and has saved billions. Xerxes sat on a throne in Susa, but Jesus sits on a throne in heaven. Xerxes was the most powerful man on earth, but Jesus made the earth and the heavens over it, and he rules over all of creation. Xerxes says he would rule wherever the sun sets, but Jesus made the sun and commands its rising and its setting. Xerxes died, and today no one worships Xerxes as God. Jesus conquered death, and today billions worship a risen Savior. Xerxes thought he was a man who became God. But only Jesus is God who became man, which is so much cooler. Xerxes' kingdom had subjects from many nations, but Jesus' kingdom has joyful worshipers from all nations. Xerxes threw enormous banquets, but the one that Jesus is preparing for us and his people makes everything that Xerxes did pale in comparison. All of the lavishes that Xerxes had pales and disappears in comparison to the banquet that Christ throws for believers. Xerxes' kingdom came to an end, but Jesus' kingdom has no end. Xerxes declared himself king of kings. It's another inscription that archaeologists have found. I am king of kings, says Xerxes. But he died, and he stood before and was judged by the one and only king of kings, Jesus Christ. Xerxes sat on his throne feeding sin, but our King Jesus got off his throne to forgive sin. Xerxes appealed to our deprived nature, but King Jesus gives us a new nature. King Xerxes' words are no longer read and are no longer obeyed. But King Jesus' words will forever be read and obeyed. Xerxes gave people what they want. Jesus gives people what they need. Xerxes banished people from his presence. And King Jesus never banishes any of his people from his presence. He calls them to his presence. Xerxes paraded his wife degradingly. But King Jesus, at the end of time, will call upon his bride, the church, to parade her spotless and pure and glorious. Xerxes no longer sits upon a throne, but Jesus sits high and exalted, risen from death, ascended into glory forever on his throne. Xerxes died and his people died, and King Jesus rose so that his people will rise with him forever and ever. Today is a day of celebration, folks. Today we are citizens of a greater kingdom. We have received a greater gift. We have a king who is higher than any that this world might claim. 
So I would say the worship team would come forward because we look forward to a greater blessing. We gather in the name and the presence of King Jesus this morning. We claim his kingdom for our lives and our heart and our behavior. He is our great king. He is a better king than any king in every king. He is the king of kings, and so now we get to celebrate King Jesus. And if they were willing to throw lavish, extravagant, fun, joyful parties for an evil, false king, then how much more than right now should we rejoice and throw the most biggest party for King Jesus as we worship? Everything should be given to King Jesus. We rejoice that our king knows us, that our king loves us, that our king saves us, that our king seeks us, that our king serves us, and our king is preparing a banquet for us. So this morning, would you stand to your feet and would you worship King Jesus this morning? All right, I feel like this is the point in time in the service where the Lord wants you to make a choice this morning. You might already know that Jesus is Lord of your life, but sometimes we know that we have a king, but we put ourselves as subjects under someone else. And this morning, the Lord would say to you, listen, I am a good king, a gracious king, a loving king, a king who came and lived and died on a cross for your sins so that you can have freedom from everything. It says in the book of Zechariah, your king will come on a donkey and he will bring salvation and he is righteous. And that is the one that we call Jesus. And in Revelation it says this, he will come again and he will come again on a white horse. He is clothed in robes and righteousness. The word of truth comes out of his mouth. And on his robe and on his thigh is the name King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This morning, as we enter into the last two songs of worship, I would say this. If you have not yet put your trust in the good King Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins or the situations in your life, if there is something you are holding back from God this morning, give it to him. He is a good king and you can trust him with it. Right? This is something that God is calling you to do this morning. And if you have everything under Christ's submission, then this is a time to say, Lord, you are my king. I love you. I'll follow you. What do you want me to do, Lord? How do you want me to serve you, Lord? How can I give grace, Lord, to those around me? Why don't we just have a moment of prayer? All right. You are subjects of a royal king. Go and live under his kingship this week and help other people see that kingship as well. Amen? Amen. Go in peace.